0: Hello and welcome to the MVP, uh, Oh, I forgot the name of the podcast. My God, you and you—the podcast that you listen to. Now, actually, I only uh, got into that loophole because several people ask me about why is the name of the podcast "You and You." You know, the last three episodes were aired last week, and when I get that question, my answer, if any, is that this podcast has the purpose of bringing you insights into what is the experience of doing the MPP of UM and Merit, two institutions that start with an U. Actually, the correct branding will be University of Maastricht and United Nations University. But here I can have some leeway to be less structured, let's say, because none of my opinions ...represent whatsoever any of the visions of the institutions mentioned before. Because I'm the student ambassador of the program, of the MPP program. I emphasize the word student. Now, this is good news, I think, because I can bring you some spicy guests... ...and have edgy conversations without really taking the risk of putting anyone in trouble... ...other than ourselves... And that is why we have today Pedro Pablo Aguilar. He's from Venezuela and he has some very interesting experiences to share with you. Now you will hear about his fascinating journey in a minute. So, without any further delays, please welcome Pedro Pablo Aguilar and I really hope you enjoy this show. So, first Latin American podcast of the oh. MPP Student well, ambassador. Um, You are um, from Venezuela, Uh which uh, is always a delicate topic in Latin America, (laughs) the Venezuelan public affairs, but you yourself, you have a personal
1: history that uh, is somehow related to public affairs, right? Uh, Yeah, my grandfather uh, was a politician. Um, He was a Christian Democrat, uh, and until he he was in Congress in Venezuela from... I think 59 to 99, so 40 years in Congress. That's lots of years. It was a lot, yeah, it was a lot of time. Um, So I always say, so I'm like, if anyone's to blame, it's us. (laughs) (laughs) You were close Um, to him? Part of the way, I I am, he's still alive. He's he's still still alive, alive. yeah, he's 92, um, still living in Caracas. Still living in Caracas. Mm -hmm. Did he taught you things about public life? Did you speak to him? He doesn't talk at length, Uh, he was when he was a politician, he was like famously um, not someone who was super chatty. When at one point he has like a little, um, a little sculpture or trophy in the house. That's a joke that says Limón de Oro, uh, just because he was like gold the lemon. The golden lemon, yeah, just because he was sort of a sort of a sour personality. It's not. A natural politician, I would say. Oh, um, but he got things done, I guess. I don't, I don't know if <laughs> he got things done or not. I was too young. It's it's weird, because so we have the same exact name. Uh, so anyone who knows about Venezuelan politics, as soon as I meet them, they're like, oh, this isn't related to this person. Yeah. So no one op- opens up about it. No one critiques. No one's like... You know who I hate? Your grandfather. Like, people <laughs> don't, people don't get super honest about it. What was he leftist or no? Uh, Center right. He was the he yeah. was when he retired. He was the head of, of Cope, which is the Christian Democrat Party, in yeah. or was now it's essentially disappeared because the Venezuelan opposition is a mess, and COPE has particularly been a mess. I yeah. can't imagine we will go through that further down the road. But mm-hmm. your education, you. I, I imagine you did school in Venezuela, right? Uh, until high school, yeah. I did high school in Venezuela. I did uh, like s- primary school in Venezuela, secondary school in the states. So if we were uh, we could run maybe an experiment, mm-hmm. you would have like the yeah. previous uh, Chavismo and the post. You lived like kind of in both eras, uh, let's say. Uh, only the very beginning of the Chavez years, because um, you know Chavez years I think are broken up into a few different stages. Uh, one of the big ones is pre two thousand two and post two thousand two, and also pre two thousand and post. There was a, a new constitution that he instituted, mm-hmm. right? And so that was the beginning of the changes. And then uh, two years later is when things really started to get really shaken up in two thousand two. There was a, a successful but failed coup attempt, uh, and then after that stuff really got pretty crazy. So all my by by that point, by the time the coup happened, I was already gone. Um, I, I moved back to Venezuela later. But that was as as an adult. You left to study in the states, United
0: States of America. What, age? what uh, age? I was twelve. You
1: moved to the United States because of the change in politics, or for another? reason? No, as a personal, my mom got remarried, and my stepdad is from the states, and you know stuff in Venezuela wasn't great, and uh, my so it was the my mom just made the decision that instead of trying to, for him to move, I mean that was never really considered having him move to the to Venezuela so she, she was moving to the States and she you know she, she was asked if I wanted to stay or go and uh, when you're 12 the US sounds so cool right it's like the movies yeah so you're like oh let's <laughs> go to that place that's it's like where people go on vacation
0: yeah yeah and, and was, it was it a smooth transition
1: it was, it was not, not. <laughs> <laughs> so the movies lied the movies do lie about many of the things it turns out but also I didn't move to like a place that you see in the movies I moved to what I would call like a semi-rural blue-collar white area in the northeastern United States, so it's not quite normal farms or the south or the Midwest, It's a uh, and it's not the city. It's like a, It was a, a town of like 5,000 people, so like a very small town, um, and I was one of the only Latin people there, one of the only immigrants, and it was, it was just sort of a, a weird transition that I wasn't ready for it at 12. I didn't know, I didn't prepare myself for it, I didn't know what to be prepared for.
0: I can imagine, yeah, but was,
1: you studied high school, you Mm -hmm. went to university there, Mm -hmm. Boston, right? Uh, Yeah, Boston College, Uh, political science, Boston College. So you are a politologist? (laughs) (laughs) I am am not, you know, the US um, has this really famous university system and a lot of people go there, but unlike at least Latin America, and I think a lot of places in Europe, it is not a very uh, focused education, it is very broad, so like a liberal arts education is the name of it, right? So I studied Mm -hmm. a lot of different things. Uh, I had to take classes in math, philosophy, uh, science, theology, history, like all kinds of things. And so the amount of political science classes I took was, was rather small. So uh, when I go home when I went home to work and people were like, "Oh, and they, and they use that with, like, they call me a political scientist, like, politólogo. Yeah. And I was like, that is <laughs> they inaccurate. Ask you, they ask you for forecasts, right? <laughs> right. They, well, they're asking yeah. for expertise that I don't have. And they're giving me a level of respect in the field that I definitely yeah. do not deserve. I mean, how's the election going to go, right? That yeah. kind of question. Well, you know, like, I have opinions, just like anybody does. <laughs> but they're thinking I'm someone who, like, went to school in the system like Venezuela, where you spend five years studying nothing but political science, right? So yeah. you take like 50 political science classes, you yeah. took a, I took like 14, you know, I, I, it's, I have, it's like I took one year of political science in Venezuela, yeah. almost yeah. maybe one and a half. So it's not the same level of expertise, uh, and so now I'm here. Yeah, and you finished university, what did you do after being a politologist, <sighs> or
0: non-politologist, however you prefer to define yourself?
1: Uh, so I graduated university in 2010, so uh, 11 and a half years ago now, which is kind of terrifying. And it was the Great Recession, so there were not a lot of jobs, and I had a fair amount of debt because the United States uh, insists on either you have to be rich or you have to go into debt—the two options—or don't go to university, I guess. And at that point, you know, I'd I'd spent like basically like a decade in the states, right? So I was I was tired of being in the states. I wanted to try something new, and uh, I had a marketable skill, which was I speak English. And so I went to teach English abroad. Um, yeah, I went to South Korea. So I graduated in 2010. Um, I was in Korea till 2012. And then in 2012, I moved back to Venezuela and then in Venezuela, I, I, I loved Korea. It was a really fun time, but I left because there was a presidential election coming up in Venezuela and I wanted to, and I wanted to work in it. And, uh, you know, if, I didn't do it. Now I, I would have had to wait till the next presidential election. Yeah. So can you describe what you did in the campaign in Venezuela? Oh yeah, sure. Um, Which year again, please? It was two thousand twelve. Um, okay. So the, the presidential campaign was Hugo Chavez uh, against Enrique Capriles. Uh, mm-hmm. He was the opposition candidate. Uh, you worked with Capriles. I worked for his campaign. I worked w- for his campaign. I worked for. So I, I worked in the headquarters of his volunteer office. And helped run the nationwide volunteer networks just logistics and stuff you know getting because uh, he traveled a lot throughout the entire country yeah. and so there would be events all over the country and you would need like groups of volunteers at different places to, to help out and those volunteers would need supplies and that kind of thing mm-hmm. uh, so it was it was that's what I was doing and it was not uh, a full-time thing because politics in Venezuela is not professionalized so basically no one is working full-time in it like even my boss's boss was not full-time uh, so I did that part-time, and then I also worked for a get-out-the-vote uh, effort geared towards youth uh, in the rest of my time. Yes,
0: to foster attendance, to... Yeah, attend- to
1: get people registered, to get people to So to you were up. into a, a party that was part of the
0: coalition with Capriles, you might say. Uh,
1: yeah, so I, I was, I've actually never uh, registered as a party member in, in Venezuela for any of the parties. Uh, the parties are a lot more in flux. I think that in a lot of other places, a lot of the parties are very new. They spring up very suddenly. People who started one party leave and start another party, and then maybe they'll leave and start another. Like, they just keep love starting parties. I don't know. Um, <laughs> Instead of winning elections. <laughs> yeah. There's two parties. It's, there's a lot of argument. There is, I, I consider myself 100% a member of the Venezuelan opposition, no doubt. Uh, but the Venezuelan opposition has often been not very well organized and not very cohesive. In terms of professionalization, did mm-hmm. they pay you to do this job? No, no, almost no one got paid. The, the high-up I mean, high people who were full-time got paid, I think, a little bit. But essentially, you, you were an unpaid worker. Was it data-driven? The... Was it data-driven? Um, no, I would say no. Um, it was... Duh. Was it data-driven? That's actually an interesting question. I think it was a, it was a mix. Capriles was really intent on visiting as broad a range of the country as possible, so they did have a a a pretty set mapped out idea of how they wanted to crisscross Venezuela, and he walked like just thousands of kilometers essentially. Old school politics. Yeah, just really going, but you know that's got to be pretty organized, and um, it was also he was really trying to focus on areas where he felt. He had some shot, but maybe hadn't been focused on by the opposition. So in that sense, there was some data going into it, but as far as like big data or as far as like, there were no regression analyses being being run on on the (laughs) campaign. Nobody had a a Stata license. (laughs) No, I don't think
0: so. I I don't think so. Now, let's get into the hot topic then. You have Mm -hmm. experience in elections, Mm -hmm. and always there is a point of discussion in Latin America about mm-hmm. how fair the Venezuelan elections are uh-huh. in Argentina uh, I am from Argentina, it's a hot topic as well yeah. because it's also something that is like the bad example, mm-hmm. let's say of Latin America. Yeah. How do you feel about that? What can you say about that discussion
1: from uh, your experience? Well, when I start talking about this I, um, I think there are a few topics that when I'm done speaking, people can more broadly agree that they hate everything I said. Um, <laughs> okay. Like every everyone can agree on that, like both the chavistas and the opposition. Anytime I have a conversation with anybody, yeah. everyone thinks what I said was right. criminal. Yeah, criminal. <laughs> um, I think essentially what happens in Venezuela, and I'm I'm speaking the last time that I was really twenty degree involved in a in a in a campaign. In Minnesota was twenty thirteen, which was the, the, right after Chavez died. There was a, an emergency election called, um, and I, I think campaign day. Like it, when people speak about election fraud or camp, I think they're talking about votes being made up or votes being discarded, right? I think like that's the image people have that uh, oh, they went into the ballot boxes and they added a bunch of votes or or they took out a bunch of votes, yeah. and that's they distorted the numbers. And I think up till that point they did not need to do that they they had quite a bit of popular support and also they the regime uh, the regime yeah yeah the the, the chavistas they did engage in what i would call probably election fraud uh or campaign fraud sorry not election fraud but more campaign fraud um i would say that the way they ran the campaign was if not illegal uh, deeply should be illegal like it was unjust uh yeah so th- there was a to lot. To of- a certain degree, that happens in all
0: Latin America. And
1: yeah, it does happen. Um, like giving for free. Of course, yeah. Stuff. Give. Yeah, the handouts. Yeah. Um, in in Venezuela, it really reached a, a quite large scale. It became a large scale operation where, like, houses were being given away. Uh, people were getting, you know, up, 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 like large appliances. Like there was there there were like literal giveaways of things. If you were going to, you know be a chavista and and vote so and this is obviously all coming out of public money right um and the the spending campaigns would really crank up around election season with a very clear messaging like these things are from chavismo and if you vote chavismo you get to keep them if you don't vote for chavismo then you those these things go away Mm. um which they had a lot of cash. I mean, in two thousand twelve, oil hadn't had uh, had started to to go down, but hadn't quite crashed yet. So they they had a fair amount of cash on hand compared to now, when they have you know no cash on hand. Uh, so there was a little bit of money to spend on on what I would consider buying votes. Uh, yeah. Which you can look at that however you want, whether it was within the lines of the law or not. Um, but also when you have all the courts, everything is within the line of the law. Hmm. Um, I mean, it's difficult sometimes to talk um,
0: if you don't f- fully acknowledge how telling the evidence is, and mm-hmm. there is always dispute on this point in Venezuela specifically. Yeah, uh, but what it cannot be argued, and mm-hmm. somehow surprisingly is still being argued in Argentina, mm-hmm. is if in Venezuela there are violations of human rights. Or not. You oh, there they're definitely aren't. There definitely. Uh,
1: yeah, that's not. A, I mean, there's not no my opinion to, to. It's not my role to give an opinion. Sorry if I get also emotional on oh, no, these I, topics because. I don't <laughs> think there's any doubt that human yeah. rights are being violated in Venezuela. I mean, it's not like. Yeah, it's, it's not something that can really be argued against mm-hmm.
0: because the evidence, I think, in that case is there. Yeah. Right? Have you had any particular experience that, I don't know, for you, how do you perceive that? That situation and what do you feel when somebody says, oh, no, the reports are
1: flawed or something like that? Um, so I, I think something they've done is they, they target individuals uh, more than they target large groups, right? So it's not like an ethnic cleansing. Uh, that's not what's happening in Minnesota. What's happening in Minnesota is that uh, individuals are being dealt with on an individual basis when they become a problem or a threat. Um, there's also the issue of large-scale crime uh, which is a separate issue, and then the accompanying problems that go with the economic crash and with the infrastructure crash in Venezuela f- of public services. Probably we cannot say how the results will go
0: uh, without this giving away things for free for people to vote for you. Yeah. But I think that the difference is that in the rest of Latin American countries there can be an opposition with yeah. certain exceptions, of course. Yeah, I think re-
1: regime. It, a couple things make a difference in Venezuela, and that is um, the let's call it the, the state has maybe deputized citizens. Uh, so there are there are groups of Venezuelan civilians that are sort of allowed uh, to carry out state-sanctioned violence. Let's call it against people who and against you know uh, protests, things like that. Um, that the the state doesn't want uh, to deal with. Uh, so sometimes people who are too loud or people who are too prominent and that and they're not official police or military or anything, uh, but they do get a lot of a fair amount of leeway and I imagine fairly direct instructions from from what I know at least uh, so I think that's that's different and also the let's call it boldness of it like it's it's very open you know there's there's no there's no need to pretend.
0: I want to know why would you change your path and came to Maastricht
1: to start this program. Uh, I always intended to go to grad school um, and you know living in New York and seeing the jobs that I really wanted to get involved in. I knew that I needed uh, more education I needed I needed uh, to, to go a little further in my in my academic career. And uh, also I, I like learning. I like, I, I like being in the classroom. Um, I like the academic environment. Uh, you know, I miss it a little bit, but mostly it was just because I I felt like I needed to, to, to learn more, and eventually I do want to go home, to to Venezuela, and you know if I'm if I'm having like, write out all my dreams or whatever at one point, hopefully there will be a large scale return to Venezuela, and Venezuela will turn around, and I would like to be home and. To whatever small degree, or maybe I would like to be a part of helping Venezuela like come back to like become a functioning country again. And in order to be as useful as possible, I, I knew I needed more education, uh, specifically in public policy. Do you think?
0: I mean, maybe this this is a a question that might be tricky, but we are dealing here with a lot of evidence, calculations, mm-hmm. data. Mm-hmm. How do you feel when you learn all of this stuff and your life calling, let's say, is to operate in an environment yeah. where data and evidence is not really important, let's say, like politics?
1: Yeah, Venezuela. I mean, it's, it's tough when it comes to a place like Venezuela. Uh, actually, my, my first final project here I did on a, on a program in Venezuela. And I gotta say, I sort of regretted that, because coming across good data was really difficult. Yeah. Uh, coming across data that I could really rely on, it was, it was, it was really difficult. The, the regime has a really good marketing arm. I mean, they do a great job of, of public relations, you know? So the information that they don't want out there, it's, it's a lot harder for it to get out there. It's hard to do on the ground research in Minnesota uh, that is extensive and not in line with the regime. And also, you know, when we're in class and we're talking about uh, theory and we're talking about uh, a lot of things we talk about function best, obviously, in, uh, let's call them develop, in developed countries, right? So a lot of the theories apply when they, with strong institutions is when these theories, like, really work best. And so it'll, it happens a lot in tutorial that, uh, particularly in, like, in, in public policy and in public economics— Class people would you know we were talking about whatever, and then I I I would say some like horror story about Venezuela where you know the the, the theory completely falls apart because none of the factors that we think about as uh, as assumptions are present, yeah. and and you know then everyone's just like oh my god how to, how is that a place that exists uh, but yeah. it is it does exist well it's difficult to explain right
0: is there anything else. That I forgot to ask you something that you might recommend to a, to a Latin American student that wants to join this program?
1: To a Latin American student that wants to join this program. Oh, that's actually kind of tough. I, I've never lived in Europe before. This is my first time living in Europe. I lived in Asia, I lived in North America, I lived in South America. Um, it's been nice to be somewhere um, where public services function, uh, not, not the US. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's, that's nice if you have the ability to and you know the necessary everything to come I think to the Netherlands I think it's a really nice place to come live I think it's a nice place to spend a year or two maybe more uh, I would say look for housing early <laughs> <laughs> finding <laughs> housing here is an absolute nightmare yes. I don't know how they have allowed this to happen for a place where things function fairly well there's a lot to learn here and there is a lot expected of us but it's not insurmountable like it, even if you are not someone who has a background in any of these things actually i think you can you can get into this and and if you put in a fair amount of of, of work yeah but you don't you don't need to have some expertise to come here and, you know you'll learn the things you need to learn at least up to now I mean, we've only we've been here less than 4 months but I, I would say I'm enjoying myself I think I'm learning a lot um, and I hope I hope that continues I mean there are some stressful periods uh, yeah. it, Christmas uh,
0: yeah. what are you going to cook? What am I doing for <laughs> Christmas? You're, you're a very good cooker that's, uh, we didn't
1: go through that, is, that but just we can finish yeah. with your Christmas <laughs> dish <laughs> What am I going to cook? I don't know what I'm going to cook I don't even know where I'm going to be I have uh, a couple soft plans but I'm not sure I don't know what I would cook Uh, I I get nervous cooking for large groups of people you know like when it's more than like five people that makes me that makes me so nervous so depending on where I am if it's for like four people great then I can I can take a lead on a whole meal if it's more than I'm sure you can can. deal with more than that but we are running out of time Pedro thank you so much for this
0: conversation of course